World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. First, it was your television. Next, maybe your fridge. In the future, absolutely every device in your home could contain a little computer connected to the web. The growing Internet of Things comes with new capabilities, but also huge new risks. And take a look at the world's cities and some striking parallels emerge, regardless of the geography or the history. What makes cities such a draw? We speak with Monica Smith, an archaeologist who says they're where the species fulfills its destiny. But first... Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro is remarkably resilient. His socialist revolution is in ruins, the economy in tatters. Venezuela's malnourished people are fleeing in droves. But in spite of all that, the efforts of the opposition to restore democracy have so far failed, even with help from America. Today we are announcing additional sanctions against the repressive regime, targeting Maduro's inner circle and close advisors. This week, the United States and more than a dozen Latin American countries will meet at the United Nations to discuss how to increase pressure on the Maduro regime. What will be the Trump administration's next move to help the Venezuelan people depose their dictator? Our senior editor, Michael Reed, recently spoke with President Donald Trump's point man on Venezuela, Elliot Abrams. It turns out there might only be one way out of the crisis, and Mr. Maduro's regime would have a role in the new Venezuela. In January, Juan Guaido, the president of the National Assembly, the opposition leader, proclaimed himself interim president on the grounds that Nicolas Maduro's second term was illegitimate because it was the product of a fraudulent election. The United States immediately recognized him, as did a number of other countries, 55 now, most of the democracies around the world. And the U.S. backed up that recognition with sweeping sanctions against Venezuela's oil industry. The assumption in the National Security Council in Washington was that the sanctions would cause the armed forces who sustain Maduro in power to flip and embrace a democratic transition. But it hasn't happened. Well, why not? Why haven't these wide-ranging sanctions done any good? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, they've certainly made things much more difficult for the government. Its revenue streams are being squeezed. That, of course, means that the economy as a whole is suffering as well. But it was already in a total mess. Now, some people say that sanctions in themselves do not topple 
determined dictators. There's no evidence that that has happened before. But they do make life more difficult, obviously. What effect have the sanctions had then? It may well have been the sanctions that prompted the Maduro regime to start talks with the opposition, seemingly serious talks, because the government has often wanted to play for time using talks. These ones appear to be serious under the auspices of the Norwegian government. And how have those talks been going? Well, there were several sessions, and according to several sources, at the end of July, the government for the first time admitted the possibility of an early presidential election next year. The beginning of August, the US administration slapped further sanctions on the regime's finances, and that caused the government to suspend the talks. The opposition was not consulted about those sanctions. It was taken by surprise. I think the talks will resume, but they haven't done yet. So essentially what interrupted that round of talks was some sanctions on behalf of America that came out of the blue and certainly came out of the blue for the opposition. What do you think the point was there? Was America intentionally trying to get in the way of the talks? I don't think the administration is necessarily united in its approach to Venezuela. I think the sanctions were dreamed up by the National Security Council. I think the State Department wasn't necessarily in favor of them. I spoke recently to Elliot Abrams, the special representative for the Venezuelan issue at the State Department, and he assured me that the sanctions weren't intended to torpedo the talks. Rather, they were intended to strengthen the hand of the opposition at the negotiating table by making it clear to the government that things can only get worse unless there's a deal. If and when it comes to that, what are the obstacles that remain in those negotiations? Well, there are several obstacles, and at the top of the list, clearly, is the position of Maduro. Abrams told me that, as far as he's concerned and the administration is concerned, the U.S. administration, you cannot have a free and fair election if Maduro remains in power. So he needs to step down. But he could then be a candidate in the election, provided the election is held under the auspices of a transition government. That's one obstacle. Another is that the negotiators at the table may agree compromises, which they then have to sell to the hardliners on their own side. And that applies to the opposition as well as to the government. But I think the other big point is that Maduro and his people will only agree to a transition in which they lose power if there is a genuine transitional administration of national unity in which they have clear guarantees, which means they must have a quota of power. Otherwise, they're not going to do it, however bad the situation in the country. That's what people who have experience of these kind of negotiations insist. And do you think the opposition would accept that outcome, that there would be a a government of national unity, a transition period? I think a lot of people in the opposition would bridle at it, especially those in exile who, in a sense, have less to lose. But I think the question for them is, well, come on, what's your alternative? Back in January, the Trump administration flirted with the idea of military intervention. We're not considering anything, but all options are on the table. Repeatedly saying that all options were on the table. Always, all options are on the table. But it's pretty clear that Donald Trump is a war-averse president, and nobody in Latin America, or almost nobody in Latin America, wants military intervention. So I don't think it's a real threat. What's the other option? A military coup? Well, it hasn't happened. 
And transitions tend to be more successful at bringing about stable democracies if they are the result of a negotiation rather than of a coup. That's a point that Elliot Abrams made to me. Um, Well, the third alternative is that Maduro survives and wins and stays there. And I think that would be a disaster for Venezuela and for Latin America. So I think however difficult a negotiation that involves a role for the Chavista movement of Maduro, however unpalatable that may be, it's much less bad than the alternative. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. When you think of a computer, a baby's diaper or a goldfish bowl might not spring to mind. But a revolution is underway. Computers and connectivity are being built into an abundance of everyday objects, forming what's been called the Internet of Things, or IoT. One forecast suggests that by 2035, the IoT will be made up of a trillion connected computers, in everything from food packaging to bridges to ourselves. Formerly dumb products will become smarter, more interactive, more efficient, and more susceptible to hacks. You've probably heard of ransomware, which is uh, sort of malware, nasty computer software that infects your computer, encrypts things like all your photos, and then charges you, you know, five Bitcoin or whatever to get your data back. That's Tim Cross, our technology editor. In June, there was a nice example of a Czech cybersecurity firm showed how you could install ransomware on a smart coffee machine, which would gush boiling water and spin its grinder round and round until you paid the five Bitcoin. And if there are a trillion connected computers in the world, that means at least a trillion opportunities for hackers. The lesson of the last 30 years is computers are not secure machines. And the point of the IoT is you spread sensors and connectivity and computers into all kinds of things that aren't computers at the moment. And I think inevitably, if you do that, you will also be spreading this insecurity and also this ability to compromise things remotely into all kinds of things to which you can't do that at the moment. Where some of the outcomes could be somewhat worse than a frenetic coffee machine. Yeah, it ranges. One of the issues with cybersecurity is it's very easy to be alarmist, but there have been demonstrations at the hacker conferences of people wirelessly hacking things like pacemakers and insulin pumps. So, you know, taking control of your insulin pump that's connected to your body and supplying your bloodstream with insulin from several meters away. There was a famous case in 2015 where some researchers working with Wired, which is a technology magazine, managed to take control of a car as it was driving along. Like many thousands of Jeeps around the world, it can be remotely hacked over the internet through a cellular connection to its entertainment system. That would they could do things like turn the windscreen wipers on and off, make the radio come on randomly at top volume. The air conditioning is blasting, the music is blasting. 
and I can't see anything because of the windshield wiper fluid. And I think in some circumstances they could even take control of the steering wheel. And that ended up in a big recall of well over a million vehicles. And so are the makers of gadgets like insulin pumps or coffee machines taking this on board, trying to mitigate these risks? I think they are, but I think there are two problems that push back against that. And one of them is this question of incentives. Adding security to your product is a cost. And it's a cost where it's sort of very hard to assess what you get in return for it. Because if the security works, nothing ever happens. So it's very hard to see what the return is on this. Even software companies, technology companies, for a long time have tended to skimp on security and see it as a place to cut costs. And in the software industry, it's taken legislative crackdowns and public shaming and that kind of thing to push the spending on this. And I think probably eventually there'll be a similar process in the IoT, but I don't think we're there yet. And what's the second thing working against this? Well, the other thing is that computer security, at least beyond the basics, is quite hard. And a lot of these companies are not specialists in computer security. And why should they be? You know, if you're a medical device maker, your speciality is not cybersecurity, it's medical devices. So even if they have the willingness, they might not necessarily have the ability And what you are seeing is companies like ARM, which is a chip design company, and their chips are in a lot of these IoT devices. They're trying to bake in security at the chip level so that anyone who uses one of their chips gets all their security expertise baked in. And do you think that's enough? I mean, if this is genuinely life-threatening stuff, and if some companies aren't taking security quite as seriously as others, that sounds like a question maybe for regulators? Yes, I think, frankly, you are going to need something like this, and you're starting to see it already. California has put in law minimum security standards for IoT products, so you can't ship it with the password being, you know, password or admin or or, or whatever. It has to be changeable as well. And Britain's government is thinking about introducing similar laws that provide contact details. So if somebody does find a bug or a security flaw, you know, they've got someone to call and say, hey, you need to fix your product. And also, interestingly, to spell out how long you as a user can expect to receive software updates for the product you buy, which is something that we're used to with smartphones, but we maybe don't think about quite so much with, say, light bulbs. Because all these things are computers and have software, and software inevitably needs updates as new loopholes are discovered. Exactly, yeah. And it's actually quite an interesting question. So you look at someone like Microsoft, which is one of the world's biggest companies. They'll only promise to support Windows for about 10 years after a particular version is released. You look at Apple, they'll only give you about half a decade on your smartphone. If you have an Android phone, you're lucky to get a couple of years. And that's all very well in the sort of fast-moving world of software and computing, but I think this is one of the places where maybe the business model is going to clash a bit. If you look at something like a car, a car might still be on the road 30 years after you buy it, and the companies that make them are going to have to start thinking about, well, how do we support a product that's in large part made of software for three decades when the world's biggest software company will only do it for a third of that period of time? 30 years, a lot of the engineers who worked on this originally will be retired or maybe even dead. And I think these are the kind of questions that we need to worry about now, particularly when the Internet of Things is about the real world rather than the virtual one. You know, the consequences of getting it wrong, potentially, are much more concrete. Do you have a connected fridge or coffee machine or insulin pump? Not as far as I know, but that's another interesting angle. It's getting harder to buy dumb versions of some of these products. So if you need to replace your TV and you want to buy a dumb TV that doesn't have a computer chip in it, you're going to have a really hard time now because, you know, the manufacturers have all decided that this is the future and it's not worth their while to make old-style non-computerized TVs. This thing has its own momentum and it's going to become harder to resist. Some people think that the security problems in the long run might bring us to peak connectivity. So Bruce Schneier, who's a computer security guru, he's drawn this quite fun analogy with nuclear power. So if you go back to the 1950s, people were thinking, well, maybe we could have nuclear-powered airplanes. And like Ford even drew up plans for a nuclear-powered car. You know, you'd get in your car and there'd be a nuclear reactor in the back and you'd drive to work. 
And now it sort of sounds mad. We still have nuclear power, but we're kind of a bit more aware of the downsides. And so we tend to take a lot more care and a lot more thought about where are we going to build this nuclear power station and what are we going to do with the waste? And his version of the future is at some point the penny will drop and people will have a similar sort of attitude to connectivity. And they won't think just because we can connect some object to the internet doesn't mean that we should. Thanks very much for your time, Tim. Thanks, Jason. By 2050, two-thirds of the world's people will live in cities. For millennia, humans have been drawn to the culture and opportunities that these urban areas provide. From the frenetic bustle of Tokyo to the holy city of Jerusalem to the understated elegance of London. Cities, it could be said, are where the species fulfills its destiny. But why did cities happen in the first place? Prior to about 6,000 years ago, there were no cities anywhere on the planet, which is certainly surprising to those of us who have become accustomed to thinking of cities as our natural habitats. Anthropologist Monica Smith has written a new book, Cities, the First 6,000 Years. Before cities, the whole world was a landscape of small-scale villages, and people knew each other from birth to death in the places where they lived, and there were very few opportunities for meeting strangers or coming together into larger groups. The one exception was the existence of ritual centers. So you can imagine a place like Stonehenge or a place in Turkey that's a very early site called Gobekli Tepe. And those places were really the only opportunities for kinds of gatherings that people would have. But those places were also meant to be temporary. After the gathering and after the ritual, people were meant to go home. After a while, people did not want to give up that sense of excitement and only be in a temporary place. So they created more permanent locations for dense settlements and interactions. And that's how cities were born. And you say in the book that the, there seems to be something of, a, of an innate human drive towards cities. What, what do you mean by that? So for about 100,000 years, our species has had all of the things that we need as building blocks of urbanism. We've had language to communicate and plan. We've had a real fondness for objects, wearing objects, creating objects, crafting objects. We've had a propensity for migration. And we've had the capacity to build architecture. And all of those things seem to have been somewhat dormant, but then combined in the capacity for urbanism slightly after the beginnings of the domestication of plants and animals because you really couldn't have a city supported with food unless you were able to generate a surplus in the countryside. So those two things did seem to follow, that you had first a capacity for increased agricultural productivity, and then you had this nexus of people able to absorb that density of population. So there can be festivals as there can be riots. What are the the downsides of cities? So there are actually many, and these are the things that we almost willingly overlook. There is, of course, crowding, there's pollution. Another thing that people had to forego when they moved into cities was a direct control over their food supply, which is really quite amazing because 
In a village, you always know where your next meal is coming from. Your field is right there, the cow is right there, and it's under your direct storage and supervision. But nobody keeps a year's worth of grain in their house in a city, not in ancient times and not in modern times either. So again, we willingly depend on strangers to provide us with the essentials of food and water. When you go into a shop, You don't know where the merchant has received all the things that go into your sandwich, and it doesn't bother you. You know that when you need something to eat, you know, particularly in a place like London where there's so many takeaway places, when you need something to eat, it will be there. It's almost a kind of urban magic of provisioning. And we see that in ancient cities. We see the remnants of takeout food in the trash of ancient cities. And we see takeout food as a component of urbanism all over the world today. And with this sort of universal view of cities and the way people develop and use them, does it make sense to ask what, what the future of cities is? is it, will it not be what the past of cities has been? I think that we must embrace cities as a kind of global solution to the many problems that we are facing from climate change to social justice issues because it's the best shot we have. There are now more than 55% of the world's population living in cities. And none of those cities are full. So you think about a place like Tokyo or Mexico City or Manhattan or London or any of the other growing cities, and there is no sign on them saying, sorry, we're full. Instead, what we're seeing is cities are growing because they represent the kinds of opportunities that people most want for themselves in education, in employment, in entertainment. We might as well see cities as an opportunity to efficiently supply populations with the things that they want. And not only that, you know, cities are global places of desire in terms of their visibility. We think about the word cosmopolitanism as a positive and as an affirmative of what humans can do through innovation and entrepreneurship and achievement. Professor Smith, thank you very much for coming in. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.